You are now listening to the Faith Community Bible Church Podcast. It's our prayer that this message is not only a blessing to you, but to your entire family. Join us as we aim to make Christ known in our community by caring for the community. God bless. Come on, together, let's celebrate God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And it's good to, good to be here today to, to worship King Jesus together and to just to reflect really on um, his goodness and his mercy shown toward us. Wanna uh, wanna take advantage of the moment to welcome each of you here to Faith Community Bible Church, where we exist simply to make Christ known in the community by caring for the community. Faith Community, help me celebrate God for all of our first-time visitors today. And man, we are so glad, so glad that you are here um, with us today, not only here in the building, but those who are watching online or even listening to our podcast right now. We are glad um, that you are even visiting us that way. We are we are grateful um, for you. If you are a first-time visitor here at Faith Community and you haven't already done so, be sure that before you leave today, you see someone from our connection team. They have on an orange lanyard. Fill out a connection card so that we can know how to better pray for you and serve you in the future. If you're watching online, um, say hello to us down in the chat so we'll know you. You are here. We would love to, to get to know you and just thank you for making um, Faith Community your um, place of worship um, today. Y'all, we are uh, we're in Romans, right? We're going to jump back into our series in Romans. So grab your Bibles. Let's go to Romans 7. Romans chapter 7 is where we'll begin today. We're going to look at the first six verses. The first six verses here um, in Romans 7. Y'all, it's so good to have Sister Vanita Brass back in the house with us today. Been praying for our dear sister. So good to see you, sis. Amen. So good to see you today. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We'll begin reading at verse 1. When you have it, won't you say, I got it? If you need more time, say, I'm trying to get there. Man. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Hey, y'all, I was, uh, I preached in Scooter um, last Sunday and was able to catch the sermon on the road driving over here thinking about the conduit, a, a conduit of compassion. Pastor Baker killed it last Sunday, right? Super, super convicting, right? The application was all through the sermon, right? And I'm, I'm grateful, right, to, to do ministry and to serve Jesus alongside him, um, who I would say, right, greatest preacher in St. Louis, right? If, if, you, if you don't think so, that's your problem. Listen, listen to him. Right, Google, hey, Google his. Go, you Google him, right? You gonna find some stuff. He got this sermon, y'all. I'm, I'm getting to the text, but he got this sermon that he did, right? Um, called "Say His Name" that he preached December about three years ago. Man, look, Kenny, look that up. All right, look it up. It it was good. <laughs> Romans chapter seven, beginning at verse one. Here it is. Or do you not know, brothers? I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. 
for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That is Romans 7 verses 1 through 6. Bow your heads and let's pray together. Father, we love you. We honor you. We adore you. We, God, magnify you. We make you big, Lord, because you and you alone deserve not only the glory, but all the honor and the praise. So we beg you today that as we walk through these six verses of Romans 7, that you will reveal yourself to us in a greater way, that our ears will be opened, that our hearts will be defibrillated, that we'll forever give your name glory. What a joy it is to stand before your people to declare your truth. So I beg you today that you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my strength and my redeemer. This prayer and all of our prayers we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may grab your seats this morning as we, as we look intently today at Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. I want to preach uh, today from a subject, living a wonderful life. Living a wonderful life. When you think about living a wonderful life for you, what comes to your mind? What is it um, that will happen in your life where you would say, my life is just simply wonderful? If we're honest, most of us would admit that in many ways, some shape, form, or fashion, if we're honest, we endeavor to live a wonderful life. We search for or make decisions in expecting to have a wonderful experience by which we can feel successful or, or even make decisions to put ourselves in a place where we can just feel like we've arrived. We are instructed, y'all, in, in this American Christianity that uh, um, in order to experience a wonderful life, we got to go to school, get a degree, get a good job, have and maintain good credit so that we can pay for whatever our hearts desire without reserve. So much so we live our lives with a mind frame sometimes to chase the bag instead of chasing our creator. 
We've been given this idea or this thought that life, um, that, that our life isn't even close to being wonderful if we don't have the best that life has to offer. I want to share with you today, if will, that having all of these things, living the best life now um, is not a wonderful life at all. If your aim is to live your best life now, then you have nothing greater to look forward to. If if you um, are kind of wrestling through, how do I position myself right in this life so that it can be wonderful, it can be astounding, it can be amazing? How do I position myself to live a wonderful life here? If that's your approach, hear this: that's not a wonderful life. Having more money in the bank, you may be financially free, but it still comes with more stress. Right? The prof- the, the prophet um, Sean Puffy Combs was right. When he said, more money, more problems. That doesn't mean, right, that we don't want to have greenbacks, ducats, guap, if will, to do what we want to do or to do what we want to desire. It just means that that does not define what it means to have a wonderful life. Just because you are able to buy everything that you want, Just because you're being put into a position to where you can purchase whatever you want or live however you want, live your best life. That is not a picture of having a wonderful life. For so long, y'all, we've thought that a wonderful life was having all the best that life has to offer. Having the best car, having lots of money, everything being peachy, marriage is all good. Every relationship that I involve myself in is great. Every time I step out of my front door, I'm fresh to death. Life is wonderful, right? Uh, I'm so fresh that I ain't even got a liner, but I can spray paint it on. I'm good. A life filled with material gain and financial prosperity, having everything that you could ever dream of. We we, we frame this as if I'm living my best life. Foolishness. That's not wonderful life. Those things aren't true. Those things, right, if you aiming toward that, right, it may bring you, right, this fictitious peace, but that's not a wonderful life at all. What is a wonderful life? I'm glad you asked. Living a wonderful life is simply being released from all things that keep us bound and living free in Christ. And that, that's the main point today, right? That's what I want you to grab today. Hear this. Living a wonderful life is simply being released from all things that keep us bound and being free in Christ. Hear this. A wonderful life really involves us being removed from our self-centeredness, being removed from sin, being removed from rebellion, being removed from that which is sinking us and receive Christ as our Savior. Understand this, right? We, we wrestle through this whole idea of a wonderful life because we've created a framework in our mind or it's been deposited into us that things ought to go our way. And, and, and here's the thing, because that's how our minds have been deposited, when things don't go our way, everybody else is wrong, but we don't want to do anything different. But a wonderful life is simply being released from all things that keep us bound and being free in Christ. What is it that's keeping you bound? Is it your past experiences? Now hear this. 
I'm not trying to communicate here that your past experiences are wrong. But y'all know we shout on God as doing a new thing. God, do a new thing, just don't change my way of thinking, just don't change my way of wanting things done. But do a new thing. But then we say, Lord, whatever you're doing in this season, don't do it without me. But, but as soon as he said, okay, I don't want to do it without you, but I just want to, I, I want you to experience a paradigm shift. Wait, wait a minute, God, I, I said don't do it without me, but don't change my mind. Living a wonderful life, simply being released from all things that keep us bound and being free in Christ. A wonderful life really involves us being saved from, um, from us drowning in our sin, drowning in our foolishness. Listen, it's important for us to know, y'all, that without Christ in our lives, without being obedient to him, we are drowning. We are sinking deep in sin, far from a peaceful shore. But you want to have a wonderful life knowing that there's a God who wants to hear your cry. He wants you to experience him. Not only can we not save ourselves, right? Because if we could have saved ourselves, we'd have did it a long time ago. We can't save ourselves, but hear this, neither can the law. And that's what Paul was getting at here. Hear this, right? God didn't call us to simply just do, but he wants us to be with him. He didn't just call us to just simply do for him, but he wants us to be with him. That's why the law can't save us because, right, it don't like, 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 for whatever reason, we've created this idea, right, in the church that your anointing is based off of how, how great you do or how well you do. But what has happened is that we've created a culture in Christendom where too many people are doing for the Lord, but don't know what it means to be with him. So, so success is happening by their own power and not the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And, and now and, and we're, we're, we, we are creating a bunch of fictitious Christians. Now, churches are full of empty people, all because they know how to quote your lyrics and know your anointing, but haven't experienced the anointing of Jesus. We can't save ourselves, but neither can what we do. He didn't call us to only do for him, but he called us to be with him. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do for him. I'm saying that being with him fuels what we do for him. He didn't call us to do as much as he's caused us to be. Because we have life rhythms of being with him, that ought to fuel what we are doing for him. Do you know that everything that we do, as followers of Jesus, should be birthed out of a place of intimacy. So, so doing for him is only the second step, but being with him is the first. This is Cassandra, my verse, right? This is turned into my verse, right? I got many. One thing I desire the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Notice that he, didn't, he couldn't even gaze at the beauty of the Lord until he just simply be with him. He, he, he couldn't even, you can't, think about your own life, there's no way you can even recognize who God is if you ain't being with him. How do you know what to do for him if you ain't letting him tell you? You can't save yourself, neither can your actions. Right? I love, right? Here's the scripture. Come here. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He said, I ain't come to throw away what you're supposed to do or the people telling you to do it. Right? See, we, we, we write our own law now. 
He said, I don't, don't think that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same um, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never into the kingdom of God. So he's not saying here, right, like I just want to create a, create a framework for you before we get to this text, right? Because many times we read Romans 7 like, I ain't got to do nothing for the Lord anymore. I can just be with him. No, he's saying, no, be with me. You just not saved by what you do for me, right? Because of our relationship with Jesus, we do for Jesus. The law serves as a reminder or, or a revealer for us to know what God desires from and for his people. The law wasn't abolished by Christ, but it was fulfilled. That means that in order for us to fulfill it, guess what we got to do? We got to go through Christ. We got to go through Christ. And as his people, yes, we must do them. Yes, we must keep them, but it's only done through the person and work of Jesus Christ when the Spirit of God takes up residence in your life. Is there room for Holy Spirit to dwell in your heart? I remember reading some time ago about a boating accident that resulted in the loss of two lives. A family enjoying the day at the lake, and they made a turn in the boat, and the daughter fell overboard. Quickly turning the boat overboard, the father jumps into the water to save his daughter, but the father couldn't swim. But for some unexplained reason, he immediately drowned, leaving his little girl thrashing about in the water. No one on board knew how to operate the boat, and it continued to drift away as this little girl struggled. But nearby... A man was fishing in a small rowboat. Seeing the accident, he began to roll to the scene to help in any way that he could. This man, he was paralyzed from the waist down. This man's ability to save and to help was limited. Approaching the struggling girl, he held out an oar for her to grasp, but he, could only, but he couldn't do no more because of his condition. Unable to hold on to the oar, the girl slipped beneath the surface of the water while the man sat back watching helplessly. Hear this. Humans is like that drowning girl. We're overcome by sin and unable to save ourselves. The Old Testament law and any other systems, right, is very much like the paralyzed man attempting to rescue the girl. His intention is sincere. His intentions are, it's commendable. But he lacks the power to save her. We go through all of these things, these different techniques and these processes, trying to live this wonderful life and find ourselves still in the same place that we started. While some, while some of us, are, our attempts are sincere, they're commendable, they lack the power to save us. We, we're grabbing hold of all of these systems, even, even how we think about the word of God. Are you reformed or, or you Arminian or are you this or are you that? How about I'm just biblical? How about I'm just spending time with Jesus? 
all of these things, right? Learning the word and, and, and having conversation about the word and all these, it's commendable. It's great. It's wonderful, right? But, but, what, but what's happening, y'all, is that too many of us, because we hold on to other things and don't hold on to Jesus, we got a form of godliness, but we lack the power therein. How can we live for Christ without Christ? Paul's focus here in our text is to help us to see really the place of God's law in his salvific work, right? Paul uses this term, this, this term that, that we see here, law, um, or depending on your translation, law or commandment or even written code in each of the first 14 verses of Romans 7 and a total of 30 times in this entire chapter, he uses this term. Notice how Paul here used the term even in the previous six chapters. Paul explained, right, Romans 3, that the law reveals sin. He even said, right, in Romans 3.19 that the law condemns the sinner. Even in chapters 4 and chapter 5, chapter 5, right, he, defined, he said the law, right, he defines sin as transgression and brings God's wrath in chapter 4. But in other words, right, it is the law that reveals your sin to you. Now, wonder, many people in the church don't recognize sin as sin because we don't spend no time in the Word. Now, wonder we have a hard time really smelling ourselves, right, because, right, we ain't looking in the mirror, Right? It's the law reveals sin, not salvation. It brings disapproval, condemnation, not acceptance, right? It brings displeasure, not grace. But according to Paul, see, the purpose of the law is to show our utter inability to obey it and merit favor with God. By God's amazing grace, God has credited Christ's obedience to the, uh, to the law to our account, because he's because Jesus has fulfilled the law. We got good spiritual credit, not because of something that we were able to do, but simply because of what Jesus done. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone through grace alone, meaning that we are not under law, but under grace. Romans 6, he says, for sin has no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace, right? Now, now, now some people, y'all, some people misunderstand what Paul is teaching, right? When he says that we're not under law, but under grace. Paul here is not teaching that the law has no place in the life of the blood ball. Instead, what he's, what he's saying, he's simply teaching that in regard to justification, right? Being right with God, the Christian is not saved by obedience to the law, but by God's grace alone. So for justification, y'all, we are not under the law, but we're under grace. What am I saying? Living a wonderful life is simply being released from all things that keep us bound and causing us then to be free in Christ. In order to really experience this wonderful life that we as believers so desire, we must be released from the law, which releases us from sin. And to help us to see this, Paul presents a concept right, right here. He presents a concept to us here um, in Romans 7 
this, this context of releasing and adjoining, right? Now, get this. He didn't just remove us from something and push us to figure it out on our own. He didn't just take us away from something and leave us empty, but rather he released us from what we couldn't do on our own and joined us, connected us with someone who did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He, he released us, if will, from something that was keeping us bound and allowed us to connect with someone who's able to set us free. What am I saying? Hear this, whom the sun sets free. It's free indeed, right? He wants a relationship with us in spite of all that we've done, in spite of all that we ever will do. He's saying, listen, right? I want you to be free from whatever it is that's keeping you bound so that you can rest in me. He says, I am the author and the finisher of your faith. Hear this. Do you know that if something can't save you, it can't keep you bound either because you're free in Christ? It's interesting, right? Well, 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 Pastor Bert, I don't feel that way all the time. I feel like I'm being bound to my past. I feel like, right, I'm being arrested by what I don't have. I feel all this. I, I, I tell you what, right? I understand you feel that way. Your feelings are valid because they're your feelings. But what I will tell you is that there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain, Right? Well, how do I get to a place to where I can trust the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus to break every chain in your life? The more you focus on keeping you bound, that's what you're going to give your heart to. Listen, Jesus wants us to live a wonderful life, not by our own power, but through his son. How do we know this? The text shows us two actions. I just got two today. Two actions. The text, the text shows us shows us two things here in this text, right, that, that, that happens um, to us that makes this possible. First, right, the text shows us, right, that to live a wonderful life, we've been released from the law. We've been released from the law. He's releasing us from that which keeping us bound, right? Here's what he says. Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law. So, so, so right away, he's saying, hey, stop playing. You know, you know the law, right? I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies... She is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. See, the reason really that we're free is because we have died to the law. Now, hear this. Among everybody of believers, there are some who are prone to really abuse grace and others who are more likely to advocate legalism. Two types of people, you, you, you know, uh, um, in the body, you're going to find folk who abuse in grace and people who, um, for lack of better terms, right, um, um, to advocate legalism. But in chapter 6, Paul 
deals with grace abusers. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, right? He deals there with grace abusers, those who take advantage of grace. But here in chapter 7, right, he deals with legalists. See, legalists, y'all, believe in and demand a strict literal adherence to rules and regulations. Legalists are ones who say, right, you can't do this or you can't do that, right? Um, and all these different things, right? Now, um, doctrinally, y'all, it is a position essentially that's opposed to grace. Those who hold a legalistic position often fail to see the real purpose of the law, especially the purpose of Old Testament law, right, uh, of Moses, which is uh, scripture talked about is our school master or our tutor to bring us to Christ, right? We see this really in Galatians 3, right? Galatians 3, verse 24, Paul talking to the church at Galatia, right? He says this, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. <laughs> the law was your guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, this word guardian is really a word that we've seen used before. How have we seen this word guardian used before when it comes to our kids? So he said, the law was your guardian until you became an adult. <laughs> until you, you, you grew up, until you, right, until Christ came. Do you know Christ didn't come just for you to sit on your hands and stay where you are? He came, uh, right, that you might have life. And not just life, but life more abundantly, right? Um, um, the law was just our schoolmaster, our tutor, our guardian until Christ came that we can rest in him. See, at various times in our lives, y'all, like we find ourselves guilty, right, of so much. But that's what makes Paul's word here in Romans 7 um, so practical for us. Paul begins with a foundational principle in verse 1. Do you not know, brethren? Do you not know, brethren? For I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Paul here, he assumes that they understand that they are no longer under the law because they've died with Christ. And Paul is saying that the law only has mastery over us while we are alive. But since we've died with Christ to the law, Hear this, we are free indeed. What does this mean? You will not go to hell for going to watch Saul. You won't. We are free in Christ. You will not go to hell for listening to jazz, Dad. You're free in Christ. Right? Now, now hear this. Now, now I'm not saying, right, that you shouldn't have guardrails. Right? I'm not saying, right, that you shouldn't know your boundaries, right? But hear this. Men, if you're struggling with pornography, don't watch BET late at night. Set boundaries. Women, if seeing a man with his shirt off does something to you that, that it shouldn't do, then you probably shouldn't watch certain movies. Set boundaries, but you are free in Christ. Understand this, right? We are free in Christ, right? Since we've died with Christ to the law, we are free. Paul says, right, in um, Romans 6, 14, we are not under the law, but we're under grace. 
We are freed from the law by our death in Christ. One relationship is terminated, released, so that another may begin joined with Christ. Right? He, he released us from the law. Right? We have been released from the law. Understand this. Imagine for a moment that somebody commits a crime and, and the legal authorities want him for prosecution and possible imprisonment, but then the police discover that that person has died. At that point, they drop all concern about trying the criminal charges, the criminal with any charges, right? The police no longer bother with him because the law only has authority over him while he's alive. Again, Paul's principle is this. The law only has authority over a person while he's alive. But right in verses 2 and 3, Paul illustrates the principle that we've been released from the law. Watch what he says here. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. I want to share with you that this illustration does not really help us in the controversial issue of divorce and remarriage. The only point that Paul is making is marriages for life. Here it is. Any other commitment is not Christian marriage. Too many people, including some followers, go into marriage thinking that if it doesn't work out, I can always get a divorce. Having this plan B. No, right when you're married, there is no plan B. There's only one plan that's together, right? The backdoor mentality often leads to a breakup of the marriage because as soon as something don't go your way, you're looking for an out. But when you're married to Christ, you ain't looking for a way out. The only way to stay married really is for both parties to really believe that divorce is not an option. So if you're using the D word, hear this. Cease in the Greek means Stop it. Stop it, right? The only D word you should be using is death. What do I mean? Till death do us part, right? Understand this, right? The purpose of Paul's illustration, while there's principles here that could be used for marriage, the purpose of this illustration is really to help us to understand that our relationship to the law, um, he wanted to, Paint a picture here for us to understand that our relationship um, to the law, not our relationship to our spouse. But he want, there's principles to learn here. So don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? But he wants you to know, right, and understand your relationship to the law and to, uh, to help us understand that he uses this illustration. And Paul indicates that um, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. The issue there is that now, our mind on marriage, and we're looking for a way to cut them from ear to ear. <laughs> we're looking for a way to let her go, but hear this. No, that, that, that will cause you, right, to neglect so many other things, right? But what you got to understand here, right, is that you've been, um, you are now married to Christ, not his law. So since you're married to Christ, you are free in Christ. You are free. 
free in Christ to allow his law to work through issues in relationship. You are free in Christ to allow his law to work in your life, to work through reconciliation. You are free in Christ to allow his law to work on your mind, work on your heart, to cause you to be reconnected to that which is broken. You're free in Christ. Understand this. What I love is that he says in John 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come that you might have life and life more abundantly. As believers, y'all, we found ourselves slaves to sin, slaves to law, but now we're slaves to Christ. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, those of us who've accepted him as Savior and Lord are free from the law. We are released from it. Not that now, right, being in Christ, you can live a wonderful life. What am I getting at here? What am I trying to get you to see? What I really um, want you to see here is that living a wonderful life is simply being released from all that is keeping us bound and being free in Christ. That's what it means to live a wonderful life. And, and we're not getting at her, right, um, that life don't happen. We're just saying you're free in Christ. You don't have to continue to live in bondage. You don't have to, you don't have to continue to live this life as a prisoner because you're free in Christ. So not only are we released from the law, but here's my second point, and I'm done. Here it is. Not only do we see the action that we are released from the law, but I want to drive another point home to you. How can we live a wonderful life? Because we've been joined to Christ. We've been joined to Christ. He says, four through six, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we, were while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Hear this. When we died to the law, we were made alive in Christ. He didn't just kill you, right, um, and leave you to a spiritual desolation. But God, by his spirit, breathed the breath of life into you so that you can spend eternity with him in heaven. Hallelujah. Right? He says in verse 4, so my brothers and sisters, this is the point. He says, you died to the power of the law when you died with Christ, and now you are united with the one who has raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. He argues here that we were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. God, by his power, made us to die to the law. In Christ's death, y'all, we died. We died to the law. The law can never die, but hear this, we died. And it's worth noting, y'all, that we had to be made to die to the law because our independent, performance-oriented way of life had to be broken, right? This consumerism has to be broken. 
Let me just match pause and say, right, for the blood bought, what really should be breaking our hearts right now is knowing that we died to the law, but we continue to perpetuate, right, um, a consumer Christianity. Instead of looking at what we can give or what we can, or what we can get, we're not looking at what we can give. Right, this, I, I'm, I'm coming, right, to get something. What if, right, everything that the Lord wanted to give you, he already gave you, right, you just don't realize it. This performance-oriented way of life had to be broken. This idea of if I do this, I'm all good. Remember this, right, living a wonderful life is not defined first by what you do, but how you be with him, right? Prior to conversion, y'all, men and women attempt to earn their own way to heaven through law and through their good works of righteousness. We have this notion, y'all, that all I have to do is be good. All I have to do is do good things, right? That, that, and I can make it to heaven, right? Well, certainly I'm going to heaven because I'm a conduit of compassion, right? It's like we do all these good deeds, but really we're walking around like this all day patting ourselves on the back. But do you know, he's he saying, no, I don't want you to walk around patting yourself on the back. Really, I want you to walk around with your hands lifted, knowing that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Right? We have this notion that all I have to do is be good or do good things and I can make it to heaven. Just because I'm a good person, do good things, feed the hungry, house the homeless, help the needy, we think that just because we do that, we can get to heaven. But this verse makes it clear that through the body of Christ, we died to the law. He's not saying that we, that we don't have to do what it says. He's just saying that that don't save you. That don't save you, bro. Sis, that does not save you. We must place our faith in the finished work of Christ and relinquish or, or abandon any confidence in our flesh. That is true, y'all, for our salvation and our sanctification. Paul, right, is no longer discussing salvation as he was in, in chapters 3 and 4, right? Right, at verse 5, he began a new section on sanctification. And the context here makes it clear that we are no longer under law as believers. To put it even more radically, the key to Christian life um, it's not obedience to God's standard. In true spirituality, obedience to God's standard is by the product and inevitability result of something that is more centrally more important. Who is that? Jesus. It's Jesus, right? God wants to release us from a life of rituals and regulations. He wants us to focus on the ruler. He wants you to focus on the ruler, not, not rules. In fact, Hear this. Do you know, right, that's what Paul was getting us, trying to get us to see when he wrote Colossians, that Jesus ought to be at the center of your life, right? That's why he says, right, in, in uh, Colossians 1, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. All things were created by him and for him. It is he that holds all things together because he wants your life, right? Hear this. Do you know that Christ should not revolve around your life? But if he's at the center, your life should revolve around him. But we make everything about us. We wear our own crowns and all those different things because we have created life rhythms where we are the heroes of our story and not him. But understand this. 
we must begin to create life rhythms where we focus on the ruler and not, right, find ourselves loving rituals and regulations more than we love him. Why? Because we've been joined to Christ. Paul says that we were made to die to the law for two very specific reasons. Two reasons he gives here. A person and a purpose. The first purpose of our death, Paul told us, he said, we have died to the law so that we may be joined to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Paul's point here is that our old husband, the law, just made us behave worse. To bear a better fruit, we had to marry a better husband, Christ. The good news of the gospel is that we are no longer, uh, we are, or, or we are no longer married to our past, but we are married to another. We've been joined, connected with Christ. Paul is motivating us to experience a deepening relationship with our new husband, who is Jesus. And hear this, Jesus longs to be intimate with us. He longs to spend time with you. He longs to be joined with you. He longs for time with you. He longs to hear from you. He longs to massage your shoulders. He longs to interlock his hands with yours. He longs to pick you up and carry you over the threshold. He longs to kiss you. He longs, right, to rub you. He longs to rub his fingers through your hair. He longs for time with you. Will you let him? He longs to be intimate with you. Have you ever thought about that? Do you know that Jesus desperately desires a deep relationship with you? Honestly, that's a mind-boggling realization. God wants fellowship with all of us more than we could or would ever want fellowship with him. Even on your best spiritual day, I'm talking about when you feel you're most connected to him. When you feel like he's pouring himself out on you, he still desires more of you. I, I know we, wanna, we want more of him, but what if he says, no, I want more of you? What are you willing to give up for him? What are you willing to walk away from since you've been joined to him? Right? Interesting thing is, I remember many years ago, when Pastor Bacon Lady Melinda got married, they were sitting next to each other, and I went over there. This is several years ago. I know better now, David. They were sitting together, and I went over there, and I sat right in the middle of them. I broke their connection, right? Pastor Baker said, bruh, <laughs> bruh. He corrected me because I sat in between him and his wife. Why? Because him as the husband wanted a connection with his wife. And anything that was breaking connection, it needed to get out the way. Because they were joined together. They were connected at the hip. They want to hold each other's hands and all those things, right? What is it that's breaking your connection with Christ? And do you have enough courage to tell it to move? Not only have we been released from the law, 
for a purpose, intimacy with Jesus. But we've been released from the law to a person. But Paul shares with us that we have been released for a specific purpose. Notice that we have died to the law in order that we might bear fruit for God. Paul here is saying, you didn't just get released from the law and join with Christ to do whatever you wanted to do. You got to bear fruit. Notice Paul, he doesn't say manufacture fruit. He says, bear fruit. He explicitly states, y'all, that we are to bear fruit for God. This means our first aim, your first aim is to please him. Your first aim is to glorify him. I know you need scripture. Come here. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you eat or drink, you do to give glory to God. He released you from the law and joined you with him so that everything in your life can bear evidence that he's with you. You, you do know that's what he's saying, right? Okay, come here. Galatians 5, right? He says, but the fruit of the spirit. This word fruit brings us back to our English word evidence. So he said, listen, when you are joined to me, when you are connected to me, there ought to be some evidence in your life that you belong to me. Well, what is this evidence? What is this fruit that I'm supposed to bear? Okay, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. Right? He gives this list there. You can read it, but what kind of fruit are you bearing? Well, come on, Pastor Mike, right? God already know, right? We, we, we've bought into a Steve Harvey theology. Don't trip. God ain't through with me yet. If you wouldn't go to Aldi and buy a bag of rotten fruit to eat it, why are you present rotten fruit to God? He says, bear fruit. This Pauline prayer, y'all, to the church of Galatia, Paul, he challenges them to a life of good works. Are you flowing in good works? Are you seeking to serve? Are you striving to love those that the Lord brings to you on a daily basis? Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. When people observe your life, they ought to say, oh, my God, that's some shiny, some delicious fruit. I got to pluck a piece of that fruit and bite into it. Y'all know the fruit in Galatians, right? But what kind of fruit? What's some other fruit that Scripture talks about that we're going to bear, right? What kind of fruit should bear in our heart? Worship, right? Hebrews 13, 15, you can find it there, right? Worship is something that you ought to bear in your heart, believer. Not only worship, but there's connections of worship, like giving. That's some fruit that you ought to bear. He released you from the law, and you've been joined with Christ. And when you join with Christ, you want to give him everything, right? Yesterday, we was here serving for an event, right? My wife ended up leaving. She called me and she said, hey, you want something to eat? And I said, babe, you take such good care of me. She said, I try. I said, no, babe, you don't try. You do it. Thank you for taking good care of me to make sure that I have everything that I need, right? That ain't because I'm so good to her, right? Because I'm a jacked up dude, right? But it's simply because she wants her Lord, lowercase l. <laughs> she wants her husband. Read the scriptures. It's there. <laughs> it's there. 
<laughs> she wants her husband to have everything he needs so that he can be okay. That's the same heart posture that we ought to have as we're joined to Christ. Jesus, whatever you need, I want you to have it because I'm joined with you. Not only am I giving you my worship, not only I want to give myself to you fully, but God, I'm also giving you my character. As we contemplate really what it means to be joined to Christ, the question is, what is it that's keeping you bound? What is it that has you so distracted that you're missing the fact that you're joined to Jesus? He promises that he will never leave you nor forsake you. But he promises to be with you every step of the way. How do we rest in the reality that we've been released from the law and joined with Christ? He says in the final verse, serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Paul makes it clear that the law has been abrogated because it is too low level for Christian spirituality. It's too, low for, like, it's too low for us, right? That's low-hanging fruit. How do we know it's low-hanging fruit? Jesus fulfilled that. That's why he tells us in Colossians, right, to set your minds on things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God because the law was too low. The law was too low. We cannot live our own way, right, um, and expect for Jesus to be glorified. We've been joined with him. We should definitely read the law. But when we read it, we must not say to ourselves, how can I obey this? Instead, we should talk to Jesus and say, Lord, how you want me to go beyond all this that I'm reading and obey you? But we already, we already know what his answer is going to be. <laughs> he'll, he'll look at you and say, follow the leading of my spirit. Because there's work that I want you to do, but you can't do it in your own power. You can only do it by the power of the Spirit. Be here for Romans 8 in a couple weeks, and you're going to see the work of the Spirit, right? But understand this. In order to live a wonderful life, you got to be released from those things that's keeping you bound and be joined in Christ. Thank you for listening to the Faith Community Bible Church podcast. We hope you were encouraged by the message on today. To respond to today's message, please go to fcbcstl.com forward slash respond. If you would like to give to support the mission and vision of Faith Community Bible Church, you can go to fcbcstl.com forward slash give. God bless.